Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily, I'm Justin Quirk. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, the Western world's eyes have been on Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin. From his ritualistic lectures to his underlings, to his strangely theatrical public parades and sabre-rattling speeches, Putin's public appearance has been picked over by war watchers, looking for clues about his state of mind, the security of his position and the ultimate endgame for the Russian state. How did our relationship with this country go so badly wrong? Is Putin mad? Is he going to be overthrown? And if not, what does a solution ultimately look like? Joining me in the bunker today to answer these questions is Mark Berenson, Senior Lecturer, Associate Professor at the Russia Institute in the School of Politics and Economics at King's College London. Welcome to the bunker, Mark. Thanks. Happy to be here. Mark, you were last on the bunker in March of this year, very shortly after the invasion of Ukraine. Are you surprised at how things have panned out since then? I think the greatest surprise was the February reinvasion, if you will, on the 24th of February when Russia sought out not just to reignite the conflict in eastern Ukraine, but also to attack the whole of the country, including trying to get Kiev itself. What has been surprising, perhaps on a lesser scale, has been the resilience of the Ukrainian people, the successes they've had on the battlefield, and perhaps the unity amongst those in the West, uh, Western powers, and especially you know the U.S. and the U.K. in providing military support and willing to endure whatever energy-related backlash they get from Moscow in order to uh, firmly establish uh, Ukraine is an independent sovereign country at the end of this conflict. I want to take a bit of a step back. If we can take a sort of longer view, what mm-hmm. originally sparked your own interest in Russia? Because as a country, it's been this sort of bogeyman for much of my life. You know, the Berlin Wall came down when I was 14, I think. What attracted you to it originally? So I'm bit older than you. I graduated high school in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. And as I tell my students every year, my favorite film is The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman, Catherine Ross. And essentially, at the beginning of that movie, Dustin Hoffman plays a character who has graduated from college, comes home to Pasadena, California, doesn't know what he wants to do with the rest of his life. And one of his father's friends takes him out on the patio and says, I have one word, one word for your future, plastics. And this was 1967. If you had gone into the plastics industry, you would have made a lot of money until we now begin to be concerned about the green economy and and climate change. But for me, when I graduated high school in 89, that one word was Russia or Eastern Europe. I thought this whole world was opening up that had been closed off to us for, for generations, and I didn't know what I wanted to do in it, whether it was going to law, business, diplomacy. Actually, academia was kind of uh, the low pole, uh, at the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. But I was just fascinated with what was going on and wanted to know what was going to happen next. And it's been sort of a roller coaster for anyone who's been following Russia from the mid to late 1980s all the way to the present. The country has continuously surprised because of the nature of its politics, its um, direction, and the manner in which it uh, basically tried to transform itself from communism to capitalism, from communist dictatorship to a democracy, at least initially in the early 1990s, and from a empire to a nation state. And we now know that on the last sort of prong of that triple transition that began in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, the transition from an empire to a nation state has not gone very well 
both within the sort of national security sector within Russia, but also within the Russian people themselves, who um, very much have had almost phantom pangs for uh, wanting to be perceived as a global power with a huge empire. I mean, a common refrain throughout the war that has been that Putin shares that obsession you talk about with that year, you know, 1989 and the end of that era. And he's sort of trying to turn the clock back to there. Is that a fair assessment or is he trying to set the controls to the time machine back somewhere even further? Are we looking back to the 19th century or where, where do you think he sees Russia's destiny as having been? We are all a product of the generation in which we grow up in and also the training and background that we have had. Um, Putin very much, it's well known from when he was a youngster in St. Petersburg, known as Leningrad at the time wanted to join the KGB. And after graduating law school, he found a way to do that. And was very. he also was stationed in Dresden, Germany, which is for a Soviet KGB officer. Dresden is not the sort of premier spot for those who speak German to, to be posted at. You know, obviously, uh, the top tier would go to, to the West, West Germany, West Berlin or, or Frankfurt, or would go to East Berlin, the capital of East Germany. But he was stationed at Dresden. He very much believed in the ideology that the Soviet Union should have us be controlling that area. And this is a common theme amongst a lot of people in the, the national security environment within Russia who are, believe that they should control the land between Berlin and Moscow. Russia's defense depends upon it. So that couples with the fact that not very much seeing Ukraine as its own independent country culturally, linguistically, nationally, in part that view that Ukraine was not a real country comes from, from the fact that Ukrainians and Russians and, and the languages they spoke got along fairly well within Ukraine during the Soviet period, such that Russia's looking at Ukraine from the outside would see a lot in common with them and wouldn't look at the differences or recognize that Ukraine, even liberals in Russia in the 1990s did not understand that Ukraine, Ukrainian was a separate language, was a separate identity. I mean, do you think that worldview of Putin's, and you say it's, it's a more widely held one there, do you think his view there makes it inevitable that we were always going to end up somewhere roughly approximate to here? Or was there a point where things went you know, wrong, as it were? Like, is there an incident either personal or political with Putin that you can point to where he seems to turn more towards where he is now? It's clear that at the beginning of his rule in the early 2000s, Putin tried to make some accommodation with the West, certainly helping the West and the United States out after 9-11 with respect to fighting terrorism. And that was deemed to be the international priority in the early 2000s, fighting terrorism. And Putin felt as if he was accommodating for it, but didn't felt as if he was getting what he wanted back. And so by 2007, he makes a speech in Munich at the International Security Conference, basically declaring Russia's interests as being almost against the West. And that speech marked the hallmark, and everyone should have recognized at the time, and many scholars did actually, that this was um, a new pathway for, for Putin. These trend lines, though, in terms of view, what to, how to view the lands between, say, Berlin and Moscow, were always, I think, there within sort of the background of, of people around Putin at the time. However, I think that it became sort of more to the fore after the 2007 speech, after the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008, 
And certainly, it should have been very well known to the world after the invasion and annexation of Crimea and the invasion into the Donbass region in 2014. At that time, though, many in the West, including, I think, the Obama administration, felt as if they didn't want to antagonize Putin anymore and felt as if, you know, we could rationalize Crimea being Russian or, or, or desired and as long as the violence and the war does not continue or spread from that. But it didn't. It didn't stop there, rather. And there's been no indication, there's been no map or sort of plan on the part of Putin as to how far he wants to go. Looking back over his sort of exploitations, explorations, uh, conflicts in the near abroad, the, the, the former part of the Soviet Union that used to be part of the Soviet Union but is now just bordering Russia, Putin has continually gone as far as he could and stopped and then a few years later, pushed onwards. And so this provides for the sort of perhaps fear and anxiety that our East European colleagues and partners in, in NATO and in the West and Eastern Europe, the Baltic states, Poland, and so forth, their concerns over the fact that if Putin is not stopped in Ukraine, the war it may not immediately lead, lead to conflict on their soil, but eventually Russians will not stop and will take back more land. I mean, to that calculus, this is a somewhat blunt question, but do you think Putin is, you know, mad as such, or is he a rational actor in that sense? I guess I've always characterized Putin as a rational actor but with very different preferences than many of us in the Western world or many of us who um, view the priority in the 21st century is to lead to peace and prosperity. Putin's preferences are completely different. He felt as if something was taken from him and his country in 1991 and feels as if that Russia cannot be secure, Russia cannot be Russia if it does not have greater control. The idea of having an independent sovereign Ukraine with its own separate foreign policy that's different from that of Russia's is not sort of fathomable to those who are leading foreign policy and uh, military strategy in Russia today. And he talks about how maybe his own worldview has shifted, especially post-2007. How do you think people's perception of him in the country has altered? Has that changed with that? I think one of the real successes of the Putin regime is that they've gotten people to be, if not supportive of the regime, to be almost frightened or inhibited from speaking out. This is becoming a much more authoritarian regime, but it's come in stages We've had murders of journalists going back to the early days of the Putin regime. There's some sort of uh, discrepancy as to what terrorist acts occurred in Russia in the 1999 prior to Putin coming to power as president, but while he was prime minister under Boris Yeltsin. These were the, the apartment bombings that preceded the war in Chechnya? There, yes. Those questions have not been satisfactory result for, for a lot of people. And if we trace back to the beginning of the regime, it, it does give the impression that Putin really has higher ambitions than being concerned about the day-to-day -day lives of his own people. And the bargain that Putin's accomplished during the first two terms of his presidency was that population would be quiet about politics, more or less, and we, the government would provide you with a high li higher living standard. And they did. Due to high oil prices and greater integration of the Russian market into the world economy, Russians began to actually have higher standards of living than ever before. Mind you, 
even today, I've heard anecdotally that the average Russian today is still poorer than the average Indian in India. So it's not as if the, the wealth was, was spread equally. There's a good maybe quarter, third of the population that lives in rural Russia that has very little or no contact with the rest of the state and lives more or less a more subsistence sort of standard of living. But for those living in cities, especially in Moscow and St. Petersburg, the quality of life became very high. And this pacified the population and felt as if that's what they wanted to achieve. And they also had the freedom to travel and enjoy the other things that many of us in the West have enjoyed for a while. The only difference, you know, I remember when Putin said he was coming back to power after Medvedev was president for four years, um, he announced this at Luzhniki Stadium with Medvedev that he was coming back and Medvedev would be returning to prime minister. So much of what Russians were doing in their daily lives in cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg were very common on a day-to-day -day basis with those of us in the West. They got up, went, went to work in the morning on public transport. They usually worked on some sort of Microsoft Word or Excel uh, mm -hmm. documents, came home, stopped at the video store, got, got, some, got a movie for the evening, you know, went to the grocery store as well. And then on the weekends, they would want to enjoy you know, going outside of the city and enjoying nature with their families. The only difference is they couldn't select their leaders. Other than that, from outer space, their lives were very similar to, to what was going on. And the population over the last 10 years has become much more, I would say, hesitant to speak out because they know there's a consequence if they do so. And the consequences keep getting harsher and more coercive as the months, days, years go on. You mentioned that view from Putin's side that effectively Eastern Europe should exist as a kind of buffer state between Russia and the West, a sort of you know, giant DMZ. And he talks a lot about national security and the need for Russia's integrity to be preserved. Really, though, do you think he's more motivated at this stage by national security or regime security? Which one do you think is the more sort of pressing for him? Obviously, he's concerned today with his own security and his own viability because I, I think that all along he's created a very corrupt regime which has taken a lot from the Russian people and even though sometimes they've enjoyed a higher living standard than they used to, there still was a lot that was taken by those inner, working in the state apparatus. So he, he is first and foremost foremost concerned with his own safety and security because he knows that if the war ends with a loss for him, at the very best, he's going to jail. And the worst, it's, you know, something quite harsher than that. But it is mixed. He has had this, these sort of nationalist views that if he didn't have them, he wouldn't have tried to take over, I think, Ukraine um, at the beginning of this year as a whole. To that point, you mentioned of, you know, the possibilities of jail or the, the Colonel Gaddafi sort of terminus. To that point, do you see a way out of this for Putin, which doesn't involve either victory in Ukraine, however that looks and is declared, or being deposed? Is there a middle ground solution that could be workable? Well, there is increased speculation about 
you know, people inside the Kremlin confronting Putin about this, this, the uh, way in which this war is, is being conducted and it's not been going well for Russia at all, in large part due to the corruption within the arms forces. I mean, the fact that soldiers had to buy their own kit and route to being conscripted in the last um, month or so indicates that, this, the, that there's been a lot of um, uh, malfeasance in terms of uh, how supplies were allocated in the military. This is the real problem for the crisis at the moment because Ukrainians not only want to recapture the land that was taken from them in February, they want the Crimea back, they want the land back, they want war reparations, they want war crimes tribunals. And we, we've all seen through the media um, some horrific things that have been conducted on, on against Ukrainians in this last year. On the other side, however, Putin cannot sort of end this with a complete loss because how is he going to face his own people or the others with the horrendous numbers of casualties and deaths that have been occurring in 2022 on the Russian side? So this is why in many ways the uh, discussion about using dirty bombs or, or nuclear weapons and other things, it's very impractical from a military point of view, as far as I understand, although I'm not a military expert. But but it, it wouldn't accomplish much trying to have a, a nuclear device or a dirty bomb go off on the territory of Ukraine. It wouldn't make the Ukrainians revert to saying, okay, we'll allow Russia to control us. And furthermore, it, it would incur international condemnation unlike perhaps Putin has received before. On the other hand, the fact that there is no way out for Putin, the fact that he can't, there's no way of negotiating a compromise in which Putin could walk away from this and feel as if he's accomplished something and show his own people in his country that he, he accomplished something through this conflict and through this war, then it makes it very difficult to find an area of compromise. Ukrainians want their country back. They're happy to be Ukraine. And furthermore, the notion of whether he's going to tip into doing something we would consider to be irrational for the sake of just throwing up all options in the hope that something will stick and the West and Ukraine will back off, no matter how unlikely that would be, makes these sort of rumblings about using different types of weapons um, a bit scary. But it doesn't appear to be rational in terms of ending the conflict. How is it possible, do you think, that he miscalculated so badly what the scale of the challenge would be going into Ukraine? I mean, you mentioned the amount of corruption in the military. And was there just a completely misguided view of what their own capabilities were? Because it seems an astonishing misjudgment. This is a problem with any authoritarian system and with a sort of a strict hierarchy, which is what Putin wanted to build without having any checks up and down the line. There's no free media. There's no competitive political party system. There are no outside advisors. And he was sort of seconded off during the COVID pandemic for a couple of years, such that he was only surrounded by people who perhaps we, we believe think like him on, the, on these issues. It wasn't an atmosphere, a process whereby you could have alternative views and alternative questioning going on. One of the benefits, multiple benefits of being in a democracy is that you have all these other voices that can speak out and question. This is why today on Wednesday we have questions in parliament down the street and so that things can come out to the open and through dialogue, discussion, 
and debate that that um, a better policy or better strategy can be found. And without trying to justify Russia's actions, are there any of their complaints about the West's relationship to them that you do have sympathy with? Is there anything that we perhaps don't consider but is a legitimate source of grievance to the Russians? The Russians have been very aggrieved as to how the transition was sorted out for them. And there's no doubt that there were a lot of Western economists and advisors who went in to Russia in the early 1990s and advocated a program of radical economic reform to move quickly from communism to capitalism, from a planned economy to a market economy. And in so doing, who got state property, for example, as it was privatized, it was sold off, was of less of a concern than the fact that they actually gave away state property. And so this state property became consolidated in a few hands. There also were the, were many people who were able to benefit from the discrepancies between the planned economy that had not been completely demolished and the market economy. Borders opened up, allowing for free trade. But if you were one of the few people who had access to buying oil on the on the domestic market, on the Soviet market, at the time in the early 1990s, it was about a dollar a barrel of oil. Wow. And so all you had to do was ship it abroad and you made a fortune. So, And not everyone had access to being able to buy things at those prices. So we, we did in the West have a hand in this. And the Russians are very aggrieved that more help was not provided. And just finally, how do you now feel on a personal level towards Russia? I mean, this is a place which you've devoted much of your career, as you say, since high school to thinking about and writing about. It's one of the world's great cultural civilizations historically. And yet it seems to be in an absolutely awful state now. There are a couple of basic facts that I think for those of us who may not delve deeply into Russian history or, or, or um, uh, Russian politics, that remain the same. Russia has never had a period of liberalization, let alone democratization, at the same time of economic growth. So Russian people do not have not experienced a time of their economy, their living standards doing much better while they've enjoyed uh, further uh, democratic rights and the expansion of a more liberal political agenda. Going back to even the czars, whenever there was liberalization, it coincided with economic decline. And that sort of enables, I think, for one factor that has enabled for an authoritarian regime to come back to Russia. On a personal level, of course, it's been very tragic. I mean, I, I certainly have heard from a lot of friends, a lot of academic friends, who find themselves outside of Russia today and don't know where they're going to go. And there have been this huge exodus, this tremendous brain drain that began really earlier on in the, in the Putin era has really accelerated in the last several months, certainly with the call to mobilization and conscripting soldiers into the army has been met with a lot of people leaving. And those who leave are usually the ones who have the means to do so, had the better jobs in tech or other spheres. But certainly, it's unlikely that these people are going to come back in the near term. And that's what Russia needs for the long run. And I'm also a bit concerned when you spoke about how 
what were Putin's sort of impressions after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Imagine 10 years from now, we have Russia, which has sort of been isolated from the West. The only good or product that it can offer is oil and gas. But our economies have shifted even more so to the green economy. They've not been able to import or buy Western technology such that the country will be even more impoverished in the long run. And there may be 140 million people who are as, as aggrieved against the West as Putin was in the 1990s. Mark Berenson, thank you for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you. Pleasure. Listeners, remember to help keep up with these chaotic times. The Bunker is now available seven days a week with our companion panel show, Oh God, What Now?, going out Tuesdays and Fridays. To support the shows directly, find us on Patreon, where as little as £3 a month gets you the shows early and without ads, along with an inside track on live events and merchandise. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Justin Quirk. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>